here's uh, an overview. That's me. Um, here's an overview of what I just said, so that you don't need to see that again. Um, I thought it might be good to start with just getting an idea of what we mean by machine consciousness. Maybe since you've signed up here, you probably have a pretty good idea. Um, but just to give, um, it's interesting to see what people's how people's notions differ, and maybe they could come out in the discussion. Um, but uh, one idea is to just say, well, it's a it's an attempt to make artifacts that possess some or all of the features of natural consciousness. And what are those? Well, you might. Um, have different opinions on uh, what uh, the features of natural consciousness are, but some ideas include some kind of autonomy or adaptivity, learning or emotion and affect or responsibility, intelligence or perception, action, imagination, self-awareness, attention. Uh, so I think one way to, at, at least to distinguish machine consciousness as a field from, say, artificial intelligence, is that uh, it quite explicitly is not an emphasis only on the cognitive or intelligence, but trying to uh, uh, create a mind or synthesize a mind or model a mind in its entirety with all of the aspects of mentality, including consciousness uh, in its most, say, phenomenal aspect, but um, all kinds of... Um, ways that mentality exists in the world. And I think it's fair enough to say that, at least until recently, a lot of artificial intelligence didn't take that approach. Um, so I think that's why this is a, it can be thought of as a distinct field. Um, and there are, of course, there are different approaches to machine consciousness, uh, and we're going to be going over those in detail um, by looking at different um, research programs. But in general, you can understand different aspects of research into machine consciousness um, as being either a attempt to synthesize or instantiate or create uh, machine consciousness in an artifact, or maybe a more modest um, activity of merely trying to model consciousness in a working artifact or system. And I think that's a crucial distinction because a lot of people when they hear about the field of machine consciousness they think, uh, what, so you're really claiming, Igor, the Igor gets this all the time, are you really claiming your laptop is conscious? And, um, and some people in the field will say, well, yes, I actually do think that uh, my system is conscious. But not everybody in the field is saying that. Um, there are people in the, this area of machine consciousness, which has been growing in, um, I think, growing in activity over the last 10 years or so. There have been meetings annually now, and, and more than annually, um, in various parts of the world. There's an international community of people um, developing a discipline here. But in this group of people, you have uh, a lot of them are not really so interested or so, they're not so, um, um, how can I say, they're not so ambitious as to, as to think that, or, or they're not so, it's maybe self-deluding, as to think that they actually have uh, created machine consciousness or that they could do so in the near future, but they're rather trying to um, model the, the processes that are involved in forming theories of consciousness and test those um, in a familiar way. I think it's now familiar that a good way to test a model, say a cognitive model or, or a model of intelligence, for instance, is to actually try to implement it in a, in a, in a, in a computational um, model rather than just leave it as a theoretical model. And this is the same idea in machine consciousness. 
there can be benefits to modeling human consciousness or natural consciousness um, in a computational system, say, even if it, it, it isn't itself actually a conscious or aware. And then there are some people who are just interested in using the techniques that machine consciousness as a field is coming up with and the architectures um, for practical engineering purposes. So I think of uh, one of our colleagues, Ricardo Sanz, for instance, who's a control theorist, who is really just thinks he could build a better control system um, for, say, some industrial process, for, for, for instance. He could build a better control system if he were to use some of these techniques of meta-management, self-awareness, um, imagination-based planning, for instance, uh, he, he thinks that they might actually create more flexible uh, engineering <coughs> systems. And uh, this is also reflected in Stan Franklin's work, I think, uh, who's a, uh, an early worker in this area. Um, and he's actually, you know, the military is interested in his system because they think it's a better uh, way of, uh, a system that really efficiently allocates resources in a very intelligent and seemingly aware way. Uh, so it's not just that you want to create a new consciousness. It's not just that you want to use computational systems to um, uh, model consciousness, but you actually might think that these techniques that, are, that, are, that, you <coughs> that you develop for those first two activities might be of practical use as well. As in artificial intelligence, one important question that I think you might have in the back of your mind when you're looking at these uh, different models that we'll, we'll present today or when you do your own reading, an important question is, um, to what extent must we or should we or can we duplicate the structure of existing biological consciousness in order to achieve some goal in machine consciousness? Do we have to uh, copy or use the natural biological case of consciousness as our model? And so again, the, the field, different people take different views on this question and, and that might be something interesting to discuss. Um, uh, so a familiar, again, the, you can transfer some of the debates in artificial intelligence over to machine consciousness. So uh, uh, somebody who thinks that biology doesn't have to be uh, the focus of work in machine consciousness might say, well, look at artificial flight, for instance. Uh, as long as people tried to copy the way that birds fly, they failed in achieving artificial flight. It wasn't until they actually came up with some abstract principles of flight and then figured out how those principles could be manipulated in an artificial system to achieve um, artificial flight that, that, they were, that the goal was achieved. And that ended up producing systems that were quite different from the natural um, modes of flight. Um, so uh, that's, an, that's a possible position in this field, although some people might say it's a disanalogy and, and might think that uh, for some uh, reason we only have the natural case to go on, so we would be um, foolish not to try to understand the natural case in the, and, and copy it as, as closely as possible. So some things that won't really be covered today, at least in the presentations, they might come up in discussion. That's, that's fine if, you're, if you have an interest, but you probably won't see a lot on machine consciousness as, as prosthesis. So the idea here is to build or model a, a conscious system. It isn't the, necessarily the, the perhaps interesting idea of machine consciousness being um, somehow augmenting human consciousness. How can we use machines or su as support systems to uh, modify or, or augment or transform 
the experience of natural co um, conscious beings. That isn't really, there isn't really a lot of work in that area as far as I'm aware. It's, it's a kind of an idea that exists as a poss you know, conceptual possibility, but um, I don't think too many people are doing that outside of, the, say, the pharmacolo pharmacological industry. Um, we won't be going too much into ethical issues either, although, again, uh, you're welcome to bring those up if, if you like, but uh, none of the presenters will be talking about some of the issues like uh, you know, what, what happens in terms of responsibility once you have even minimally self-aware systems perhaps controlling um, scheduling for the military. Who do we blame when something goes wrong? Do we, can we out, you know, this, if this is really a conscious system, then does it have responsibility and um, do we have obligations towards it and things like that. So some of these questions sound far-fetched at the present time and in, in, a, and in a sense they are, but um, maybe now's the time, some people claim now's the time to start thinking about them while things are still in their early stages. Um, and we won't really be going any, over any philosophical, general philosophical arguments about uh, the very idea of machine consciousness. You know, a machine couldn't possibly be conscious because it's a machine or it's an artifact or it's made out of metal or something like that. Um, those are all very interesting discussion, uh, questions and objections and if you want to bring them up that's fine. But you won't, there won't be a lot in these presentations as far as I know about these kinds of issues. <clears throat> so we're assuming that consciousness is, is a natural phenomenon um, and therefore it should be able to be understood uh, naturalistically and um, one way to try to do that is to either computationally synthesize or computationally model. Now you know, maybe the computational approach is fundamentally limited, fundamentally limited, we can talk about that as well, but um, I think the kind of systems that are being looked at here are minimally computational, they're not computational in any kind of traditional sense of a program that's going to be conscious. It's rather just using mechanisms, machine consciousness rather than um, computational consciousness. Um, and one just general point here is that I think uh, one, uh, well, a good rule of thumb is that your skepticism about machine consciousness shouldn't be so strong as to result in skepticism about natural consciousness. I think some people do that. The kind of standards they put on knowing whether what they would have to know in order to know that a machine is conscious are, are higher than the kind of, I mean, those are standards that they don't even meet for the case of human beings. So um, that's just one thing to keep in mind. Okay, um, connections between working machine consciousness and different theories of consciousness. I, as far as I can tell, um, the general approach of machine consciousness is compatible with most, if not all, theories of consciousness. Um, there are quite a few theories of consciousness, but as far as I can tell, None of them require a rejection of uh, at least all of the different ways you could do machine consciousness. So even dualistic theories of consciousness, I think, are compatible with machine consciousness, and we could talk about um, that if you like. But for instance, here's, some, here's just a, a quick attempt to catalog some of the approaches to um, theories, different theories of consciousness. So clearly, I think the ones that, are, can, be, that can be considered functionalist, there's going to be no problem in instantiating these different theor uh, theories of consciousness in uh, some artificial architecture um, and modeling it that way or, or implementing consciousness that way. Um, when you get to other theories of consciousness, oh, uh, some might even put the, uh, you'll see that the inactive approach to perceptual experience can be considered by some a functional approach and others by a non-functionalist approach. Um, so in contrast to functionalist approach, approaches, you have ones that are more reliant on the 
the implementation or the embodiment or the instantiation uh, theories of consciousness that don't that aren't functionalist and say that it's just a, a being conscious is a matter of having a certain kind of pattern of activity, but it actually depends on what you're made out of. And so there are neurophysiological or biological or a different kind of inactive theory of consciousness that says you have to be built in this particular way or you're not conscious. So, so for instance, people who take Francisco Varela seriously and think about consciousness, they will claim that really you can't be a conscious being unless you're alive. And the kind of artifacts we're considering, at least today, aren't really alive, they're not biological, and so therefore they can't really be conscious. Now, even though um, that might be true, I still think you could model that kind of consciousness uh, in, a, uh, in, a, in a machine consciousness approach. Um, even if you're not synthesizing it, you still might be modeling it or, or using those um, insights from that theory of consciousness to build better systems. And also quantum, you know, there are quantum theories of consciousness as well. Not, we will be, none of the work here is using any type of, assuming any type, kind of quantum computer or anything like that. So in theory, if you did think that quantum mechanics or quantum phenomena were crucial to consciousness, then I suppose you could have a quantum computational architecture. But I, as far as I know, no, um, no, there isn't much work in machine consciousness that's, that's doing that. Although if any of you know about that, feel free to correct me. Okay, so I said I, um, let's check time, see how I'm doing. Not too bad. Okay, so I thought I'd go over um, uh, some work that uh, Aaron Sloman did, and, and I uh, worked with him on this. And um, I guess if you don't know about this special issue of the Journal of Consciousness Studies that came out a few years ago, you should, if you're, if you're here, take you might already know about this um, special issue on machine consciousness. Um, so Aaron Sloman and I had a paper in there that was a culmination of a lot of his thinking for several years about the, the connection between the work he'd been doing and consciousness with some input from me. Um, and uh, it's, this is a more, this will be the most theoretical and philosophical and abstract of the approaches we're considering today. It gets, it, it gets better from here, <laughs> from here on. So for those of you who aren't that interested in the theoretical and philosophical and abstract aspects, um, don't worry. Um, you'll have lots of uh, mechanisms and, and simulations to follow. But this one is more like, um, this approach is more like a, an idea of how to go about um, understanding consciousness uh, from, from a machine consciousness perspective. And um, of course, Aaron is now working on, a, uh, working on building actual systems on the COSY project, but um, this, uh, this, uh, this work was um, before he um, uh, kind of move back into more empirical, um, robotically grounded work. Okay, so um, this approach dovetails pretty well philosophically with the work of Heikkinen that's, that will follow. Um, and uh, as I said, it can be used as, as the basis of um, more uh, implemented and empirical work. And it's in that paper. Okay, so what I consider to be the core aspects of uh, this approach that uh, Aaron, and I, Aaron and I documented. Um, first of all, there's a, a deconstruction of the concept of consciousness. I'm gonna explain all of these aspects in the next slide, so don't, so don't be worried if you don't understand them right now. Um, so one problem with, one way to make headway with um, understanding consciousness is to uh, modify the concept. <laughs> 
Um, and a, a crucial way of doing that is going to be trying to design architectures or evolve them or build them or learn them, um, architectures that, will, that we will interact with. So we'll interact with our own uh, constructs, our own, uh, the architectures we build. And through interacting with them, our concepts of consciousness will change or be refined or whatever. And uh, in particular, we can apply that to an understanding of what qualia really are. And uh, I'll explain this strange term, realist heterophenomenology, later. It's not as difficult as it, as it looks. Now, there's some other aspects to the work uh, in that paper and that Aaron and I did, but I won't really be saying much about these other um, important aspects. Um, a different kind of functionalism called virtual machine functionalism and uh, connections to emotion and affect. Um, but if you have questions about those, that's fine. We can discuss that. Okay, so what are those three important aspects? Well, by deconstruction of the concept of consciousness, uh, I just mean that uh, well, the idea is that a lot of progress has been stymied in this area because the concept of consciousness itself is just, it's not very well behaved. It's a cluster concept. Actually, it's worse than just being a vague concept. There, you know, we can make do sometimes in science with vague concepts. Um, it's worse even than a mongrel concept. A mongrel concept is kind of a collection of different concepts that are each well behaved. But a cluster concept of, uh, is of, uh, like consciousness is even worse because it's a, it's a collection of, of different concepts that are not even themselves well behaved. So um, that's one of the problems. Another problem is that it's not that, you, that we just disagree on about empirical issues, about what conditions have to hold for a particular conscious phenomenon to be taking place or to be there. But actually, we have conceptual <coughs> confusions and disagreements that don't seem to be resolvable um, in any direct way. Um, and also, which concept of consciousness we use is ra seems to be radically context-sensitive, uh, depending upon the particular type of um, situation we're talking about. Um, it, it's just not uh, very well behaved and a lot of the concepts, it's not just the concept of consciousness but a lot of related concepts as well seem to have this uh, feature. So um, Aaron likes to bring up this old parable of the blind man and the elephant. I won't go into it if you don't know it. I'm just, if, in if you know it, he thinks we're in that situation of, of a group of people each focusing just on one aspect of the problem and coming to erroneous conclusions based on our limited perspective and not really putting the big picture together. Um, and so it's unsuitable for scientific purposes as it stands and a lot of related concepts are uh, unsuitable as well. So the idea is that maybe we can refine, develop new concepts, refine our old concepts, change them, modify them in a way that makes them more amenable to scientific pro progress and explanation if we uh, actually build models of consciousness, design architectures that are supposed to exhibit behavior and uh, include processes that we intuitively take to be relevant to different phenomena related to consciousness. And in doing so, in a familiar way, we'll be forced to um, acknowledge um, aspects of the problem that we didn't pre-theoretically, that we weren't pre-theoretically pre aware of. We'll be forced to commit ourselves to taking a stand on particular issues that we just didn't know were, were important or relevant. And by doing so, our own concepts of consciousness might change or be refined. So 
Um, I can't really go into detail about this, um, how this is really a radically different way of, of understanding how science is done, but um, the only thing I can offer to you, for those who know about um, the knowledge argument and, and the, Mary, the Mary argument uh, of Frank Jackson, um, this would be uh, an approach to what science is that is very much more experientialist than the notion of science that is being used in that thought experiment. So in that thought experiment, the idea is that you can write down on paper science, the knowledge that, that, that science contains. But in this approach, uh, science is an activity, and uh, there are certain modes of understanding maybe you can only get to through actually going through a process of um, interacting with something or interacting with um, uh, an artifact in this case or data of a certain kind. So maybe experience is essential to science, and especially the science of consciousness. So maybe um, Mary, for instance, doesn't have all the information about vision if she hasn't had particular experiences. Uh, so maybe we need to think about what kind of experiences we need to be giving ourselves in order to make a conceptual advance with respect to consciousness. Um, now, why would you need to use an architecture, what, you know, it seems odd, why an ar architecture-based um, approach? Well, again, this is hard to compress in just a few seconds, but uh, the, the idea that Aaron and I were putting forward is that um, our concepts of consciousness are products of, our, uh, of how we're built, of our own, the architecture that we instantiate. And in particular, they're what, uh, what John Campbell has called, they're cause, called causally, causally indexical concepts. So these concepts refer to whatever happened, whatever process happened to give rise to them, or they're about whatever process happened to give rise to them. And because they're indexical as opposed to being descriptive, you can use these concepts without necessarily having a good theor theoretical description about what they're about. So I might be able to, um, my concept of um, some uh, experience or quale or something in my own, uh, my own experience um, might actually refer to some process or state in me, but I won't necessarily have a very good theory about uh, what that state is or how to describe it to someone else. And it also means that there's an incommensurability between uh, your, your concept of quale in you and my concept of quale in me because these things are causally indexical. They're, they're actually, um, ref yours refers to the process in you and mine refers to the process in me and they, they really can't be compared. And so really it doesn't make sense to uh, think about the meaning of these concepts outside of the context of the architecture in which it's being used. So that might sound very abstract, but let me try to make it concrete how, um, how that insight can be used to solve, use architectures to solve um, questions about what is consciousness. Um, don't worry about the details of this slide. It just gives you an idea of the kind of thing Aaron Sohn's talking about when he's thinking about an architecture. Um, he's thinking about um, multi-level systems where the levels refer to degrees of, um, say, uh, abstraction ability or computational ability, you know, simple reactive processes, um, maybe at the lowest level, but then more deliberative processes above that, and then meta-management or reflexive processes above that, interacting with the processes below, and mo motive, motivations are in there, emotion. Um, it's, this is just an example to give you an idea of what he's talking about. Um, what's important is that we do have these uh, abilities to reflect on 
our own processes and manage our information processing in a self-aware way. Well, I don't want to say self-aware, in a um, basically regulated processes going down below. And um, I think that's enough to uh, motivate the kind of approach that uh, Sloman wants to put forward. So the way you're going to use these points we've been making to explain consciousness architecturally is, okay, what I'll do is I'll construct an architecture that models an agent who has a con the concept of qualia. So I've got not only model their abilities to interact with the world, um, not only model their abilities to plan and reason, but also model their uh, abilities to think about themselves and talk to other agents about their own experience. And then what I can do is actually look for the processes in the architecture that that agent seems to be using the term qualia to refer to. So what was it about the information processing um, that made it useful for the agent to talk about uh, this particular um, qualitative feel of experience, or this experience, or that experience. And you can also explain why it might seem to the agent as if it were ineffable, or it were private, or the other features of um, uh, qualia that uh, Dennett and others have outlined. Um, and then, you take those processes which you identified and say, well, that's what that, really, that agent means by qualia. And so now, if we explain those processes, then we have an explanation of qualia. That was we use the architecture, the architecture-driven concept of qualia to delineate the subject matter of what we're trying to explain. And that will be um, really the you, you can't ask for anything more. Um, Sloman would say there's nothing more to an explanation of qualia than that. So what this is is kind of realist heterophenomenology. Now, heterophenomenology is Dan Dennett's term. Don't worry about what it means exactly if you don't know already. But what I can say is that you can compare and contrast this idea with Dan Dennett's approach. Um, so we, we grant that people's reports of their experience are an important source of data about consciousness. But like Dennett, we don't mean that they should be taken at face value. You don't assume that when somebody reports that there's this ineffable, um, uh, non-physical thing that, that, is, that characterizes their experience, you don't take them at their word. You just say, OK, let's explain. Why do they um, find that a useful way to talk? What, is it, why, what could be the motivation for that way of conceptualizing the processes that are going on in an architecture? And the way that we differ from Dennett is that Dennett thinks that that move of taking the phenomenological reports but not accepting them at face value, he thinks that that, um, well, we're agreeing with him that in some sense the reports are false, but it's not that there's nothing being referred to. We think that actually people are speaking about something when they talk about qualia. But Dennett thinks that they're so, people who talk about qualia are so wrong about what's going on, they don't refer to anything. Whereas we think that um, people are referring to something real when they talk about qualia. And so actually we can investigate the reference of qualia talk and explain the reference of qualia talk. So we're not taking an limitless line or a fictionalist line. Um, so um, for those who know something about philosophy of science, we're saying that the concept of qualia 
is more like the concept of gold than the concept of phlogiston. Phlogiston was this uh, substance that supposedly existed in metal that explains some of the properties of metal. And alchemists had this concept. Turns out there is no such thing as phlogiston. But the ancients were wrong about what gold was. They thought gold was this shiny, uh, anything that had a particular, uh, say, shiny color that was a metal. Uh, well, no, that turned out to be wrong. Then they made a little advance. Well, it's anything that has a metal that has this density. Well, no, actually, that's not quite right either. We now know that it's uh, the element with the atomic number, whatever, 76 or whatever it is. Um, uh, so we think that the ancients were still talking about gold. They just had the wrong theory of gold. Similarly, qualia, people, when people are talking about qualia, they are re could be really talking about something. It's just that they've got the wrong theory. The wrong, they believe incorrect things about qualia. So um, that's why this approach is, can be distinguished from Dan Dennett's approach. Okay, let me move in the... Uh, yeah, not too bad as far as timing goes. Let me move on to Penti Heikkinen's work. Uh, he's the principal scientist of cognitive technology at Nokia Research, so it's quite interesting that uh, such a high visibility company um, has somebody working on machine consciousness and uh, doesn't seem to mind that he's doing that. Um, I, don't, I haven't really asked him too much about how um, his work fits in with others at, at Nokia, but um, that uh, might be something to ask him about in the future. I think he's, uh, is he at this meeting? Do you know? No, mm, no I don't think he is. Uh, he'll be at uh, the conference in Lesbos, right, in, Gre uh, in Greece in October. October the 10th. So there's another meeting on machine consciousness in, in Greece in October. If you are interested in finding out more about that, you can talk to uh, any of, I can talk to Igor or me. Um, now, the presentation I'm going to give of his um, work is based on his book, It's mainly, I mean, in the title is that word cognitive. So most of the book is about building um, a, cog a cognitive system, a kind of a, a general AI system that's not just focusing on intelligence, but perception, emotion, memory. So it's a general cognitive architecture. But it's done with an eye towards how such a construction of such a system can be um, a move towards uh, modeling or synthesizing consciousness. Right, that's pretty much what I just said. Now, one thing that's, uh, I think it's a, maybe, maybe Penty would forgive me for saying this, but I think it's a distraction in his work. Um, he makes it sound like this is an important goal of his, but I think it's really not the central contribution of his work. So. He says that any worthwhile material theory of consciousness must explain why our thinking and feelings appear to be immaterial and how these seemingly immaterial processes are related to the material processes of the brain. Now, that's very similar in some ways to what I was saying about realist heterophenomenology. Um, you want to explain why qualia talk is useful and uh, maybe if that's what Penty's getting at here, then that's fine. I think that his explanation of, of why this happens turns out to be less, it's um, given how uh, mechanism driven and detailed his work is, I, it's surprisingly, uh, it's surprising to find that his explanation of this is, is very philosophical and theoretical and, and doesn't really depend on his particular architecture at all. Um, 
By the way, I should say that this approach of what I called realist heterophenomenology, I think you might find uh, maybe another person who does this is uh, Drew McDermott as well. Um, I think he is, was his book Mind and Mechanism or something like that. I think it's. Uh, I think there are a few uh, passages in there that suggest that he also thinks that the way to explain um, uh, consciousness and in particular qualia is to explain uh, qualia talk without being an eliminativist about um, such talk. Anyway, so what's Penty's solution to this? Well, later on in the book, you find um, this. Um, it seems to be that it's he he. Res he, he solves it for all possible uh, machine consciousness architectures. There's nothing in particular about his approach that solves it. He says the apparent immateriality of our thoughts is caused by omission, the inability to perceive the actual signals and machinery that carry the perceived information. This is not a result of any intricate steps of evolution. It's the simplest state of affairs. So the idea is that you know, if in an information processing system, it's, it's just a mistake to think of um, the subject as perceiving the informational states of the representations. No, they're perceiving the world. It's a direct perception, the proper account of uh, most um, machine models of perceptual experience, say, is that is you're giving an account of what it is for a subject to be aware of the world, not what it is uh, for a subject to be aware of the representations of the world. So a common mistake when people think about representationalist approaches to cognition or consciousness is to think that the representations are perceived by the conscious agent. They're not. They're the means by which the world is perceived by the conscious agent. So he's making this rather reasonable philosophical point that I think is um, important, but I don't think it has anything to do with this particular architecture. I think this comes for free. If you do, if you do the work, if you build a system, uh, a representational system, say, that, um, uh, that is aware, it will automatically be uh, true. It's just a misanalysis of the situation to think that somehow um, the agent, that immater the immateriality of our thoughts is something to be achieved. It will, it will come naturally. The, the subject will be aware of the world, not aware of the mechanisms by which the world is represented. So what's uh, Heikkinen's general architecture? Well, I won't go into detail. I'm just going to focus on the aspects that are relevant to his um, approach to consciousness here. But in general, it's a large number of perception response, response loops that produce percepts of their own domains. So these are, these are different perceptual domains or different motor domains. Um, and these percepts are either about the external world or internal causes. And um, there are responses to these percepts. Now, um, one could ask, well, if there, there are all these different percepts in this, in this, in this uh, parallel architecture of different perception response loops, um, it seems the case that Ryan, he agrees that not all of the percepts will reach consciousness. So it can't just be the fact that you've got one of these, uh, some activity in one of these perceptual, perception response loops that therefore the, the machine's conscious. It's got to be something else in addition to having these uh, loops in place that uh, make something, uh, put something into, the, uh, something becomes the content of consciousness. So what is that difference? Well, um, Again, I'm really compressing things down. It's really a you know, very quick discussion of uh, a very complex theory. But in essence, to help you along in your own, say, independent research, you can look around page 254. I think this is really the essence of his explanation. The level of active cross-connections and binding between modalities, the cross-modality of recording and learning of related associative connections, 
and thus the establishment of episodic memories of the event, that is what um, he says, that is what puts something into consciousness as opposed to not being conscious. So I think you're going to find a lot of similarities between, if you want more, you know, this is very abstract, if you want more detail, I think you're going to get a lot of detail with Murray Shanahan's presentation of his own work because I think there's a very, uh, you know, rich, uh, uh, there are a lot of, there's a rich parallel between what Heifelman's doing and what uh, Murray's doing in terms of having um, these processes working in parallel and then cross-communicating and if there is enough um, integration of a certain kind then you can say that there's uh, a, a stable con uh, content of consciousness there. So just to give you some idea of what um, one of these perception response loops in Heifelman's architecture looks like. Um, Let's, this might be, say, uh, the auditory uh, perception response loop. And you have this familiar kind of forward model with feedback of some type of, um, it can play different roles in different contexts. It could be the case of um, prediction and then feeding back to uh, have a match or mismatch between what you expected to see and what you actually saw. Or um, it could be uh, that, that kind of forward propagating and feeding back loop can play a different role in, in simulating or planning or, or whatever. But what's important, as you saw in the last slide, is that you don't just have one of these, you don't just have multiple ones of these, but you have them communicating with each other. So something like um, some aspects of consciousness that we, we take to be crucial, like um, reportability, turns out to be uh, a mapping of the percept, let's say if you're reporting on visual imagery, it would be, uh, you have, um, say, one of these perception response loops being um, a visual one, and then another one being a, um, a motor loop rather than perceptual loop, which is a linguistic motor loop, and you would have the activity of one being fed to the other, and, uh, and there could be combinations of that with, say, auditory imagery as well. And what's going to be crucial, as we saw on the last slide, is the degree to which these are integrated. And you get, it sounds trivial at, you know, at such a high level of abstraction, but it gives uh, more detailed explanations to say of how, what blindsight would look like according to his uh, architecture, and which of these different perceptual response loops are not communicating with each other, and which ones are, and the fact that you get a partial um, connection between different loops, um, but not total like the, the normal case create some of the oddness of the blind sight uh, phenomenon. So um, I really all I can do is give you a feel for uh, his theory at this point. Um, I covered that, and I covered that as well. Um, yeah, this is uh, Penty's own slide. I think um, that's pretty irrelevant to what we're talking about today. Okay, so um, one thing I, maybe I could have made clear earlier, and maybe it would make some of what I was saying about um, Heikkinen's system a little clearer, is that he's, he's thinking of conscious states as having these two aspects. It's familiar duality between the intentional aspects of consciousness and, um, which, and, and say, the felt aspects of consciousness, or what other people might call qualia. Um, now, he thinks the intentional aspects of conscious experience are easily explained. He thinks it's the aboutness or referential ca aspects, 
And you, there's lots of representational theory out there to help you do that. Pick, take one off the shelf if you like. I think he has a relatively simple causal theory of representational content. Um, he thinks the challenge, slightly more of a challenge, is to explain the feel, um, uh, like pleasure or pain or um, affectual aspects of, of, of experience. And he thinks those can be explained not by representational theory, but by a more systemic uh, system response um, uh, form of explanation. So uh, he thinks that pain and pleasure are just system reactions to certain uh, inputs that control the attention in a particular way, for example, or have different other different effects uh, on a global scale. It's not too dis it's pretty similar to um, so some of the ways that Sloman thinks about affect and emotion as well. And he realizes that one could still ask the question, why does that feel like anything? So the, the hard problem rears its head, as usual at this point. You know, could, can't we imagine something having just those? I, I promised I wouldn't get into these uh, really you know, uh, familiar philosophical uh, problems. But um, you know, it's reasonable to ask at this point. Couldn't something have those particular system reactions and uh, control attention in that particular way and yet it not feel like anything to be that system? Well, as maybe is familiar, as will, will be a familiar um, kind of attitude in a lot of this work, um, he thinks that's asking for more really than an ex and, that, and that's the demand for that kind of explanation is in some ways valid, but all, you have to be careful of what he calls over-explaining. And he, um, he uh, uses an example of the microwave oven fallacy. So I think it goes something like this. I hadn't encountered it before. Somebody says, well, why do microwave ovens heat up food? And uh, somebody says, would say, well, the microwave oven moves the molecules in the food. Um, and that, that's why they get heated up. And some would say, well, why is it that moving the molecules faster in the food heats it up? The mistake would be to try and give a further explanation, say, well, it's because the molecules move and they bump up against each other and that causes friction and then the friction causes heat. That's a mistake. That's actually not the explanation. The explanation should have stopped. The, you know, heat just is, or temperature just is, average kinetic energy roughly of molecules. So you should have just thought, well, no, that's, that's just what heating up food is. It's making the molecules move faster. Um, to go further and say, well, the molecules moving faster means they, they, they rub against each other and that causes friction and causes, you know, relies on our kind of everyday feeling that we, if we have friction, you get warmth, <laughs> okay? Um, but that's not, that would be over-explaining in the case of the microwave oven. He says we have to be careful in the area of machine consciousness or consciousness of not making that same mistake, of not demanding more of an explanation, and you should just stop at the identity um, rather than trying to explain the identity sometimes in, a, in terms of a further fallacious step. Uh, lastly, I think, um, let's see how I'm doing for time. Yeah, just about out of time. Um, he has a few remarks about self-consciousness as well. Um, I'd only be able to say a few things here. It's basically, one thing that's interesting is that it's based on the perception of the bodily self. So the fact that we can perceive our own bodies uh, is crucial to developing some core notion of self. And I think this is an agreement, he, he would agree with um, something that Owen Holland has been taking seriously in his work in actually building 
machines that are conscious is, well, uh, Owen Holland thinks that it's crucial that your robot say, you know, a lot of times you have robots that are just kind of like uh, cylinders with a video camera mounted on top of them, and, or in, in reality or in simulation. And for Owen Holland, and I guess for Heikkinen as well, this might be a crucial mistake, or it might be a big mistake to, to have uh, a, an embodied architecture like that, because it might be crucial to developing notions of self that are fundamental to um, our own concept of self-consciousness, that you be able to perceive yourself acting and perceive your own body and see yourself as an object in the world rather than having to somehow infer that indirectly. Um, so I think there's an interesting point of connection there between Heikkinen and Holland. And also Heikkinen makes a lot about um, the kind of experience that is enabled when you can have this dual experience of touching oneself. So you, you are feeling something being touched and you also are feeling the touch at the same time. There's going to be something crucial about that in uh, something useful in bootstrapping a notion of, of self-awareness of the body. Um, so a robot, you know, it would be maybe designing robots that can be uh, conscious and, ha and develop a self-consciousness similar to ours. Maybe it's, it should be uh, important for them to be able to, for one sensor to directly, one effector to be able to direct directly manipulate a sensor and also have um, uh, uh, efferent feedback about that event, like we do. Okay, I don't think I have time for these bonus slides. Um, that's my 45 minutes. So I'll just say briefly, I'm interested, uh, one of the things I'm interested in is what I call the uh, area of synthetic phenomenology. I'm interested in, so suppose you're, you are modeling consciousness or maybe even synthesizing consciousness in some artificial system. Um, how do we characterize those states? How can we actually, you know, language is very a clumsy way of talking about uh, experiential states. Do I just say, well, the robot's imagining a wall right now, or the robot is experiencing uh, a blue ball? That's just too, I think it's, on, it's, um, it's both too rich and too uh, impoverished to talk about uh, experience. Too rich in that it already involves concepts that we have that the robot doesn't necessarily have, and too impoverished in that it's just reducing to a few bits, a really rich uh, phenomenal experience, potentially. So I'm trying to come up with technologies that will enable us to say, um, maybe similar to some of Igor's work, depict the experience of the, uh, the agent or the, or the modeled experience of the agent. And, uh, and I've in particular tried to connect this up with some work in um, inactive or sensory motor contingency theories of perception where you don't just take the current input coming into the robot as being what is, gives you the content of its current experience, but also the experiences it would expect to have were to move in particular ways uh, or do particular things. Those are part of the experience right now. So that's why I don't just see the front of the book. Um, that it isn't just that the front of the book is part of my experience. The whole book is part of, part of my experience and therefore part of my robot's experience according to this view because the robot can imagine what it would see were it to do this. Um, and so that's why um, you can have uh, a, a richer notion of robotic uh, or, or computationally modeled experience than a lot of uh, um, models do at present. Okay, uh, let's turn it over to discussion.